0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you today. hope you're doing well. We're in Mark 13, and this is a day that is especially important for you to have a Bible out and open on your, your lap. Mark 13 is where we're going to be. And if you were here last week, I uh, just want to acknowledge this really quickly. Valentine did a great job last week and, uh, man, really blessed. I know my own heart and I bet you yours too. And so make sure uh, just as you think about a sermon like that, he put a lot of work into that. It takes so much to do what he did last week. And so as you're thinking about that and finding little parts where that um, spoke to you and God was um, active in you as he was preaching, uh, make sure you encourage him with that. It'd be a really good way um, to spur him on and to uh, to love on him. And so... Uh, okay, this week, Mark chapter 13. I need to uh, preface with a couple of things as we get um, started this morning. Mark 13. So preface number one goes like this. Although all scripture is equally true, not all scripture is equally clear, right? We, we can all testify to this, right? If you tried to read your Bible, you know this is true. That although all scripture is equally true, it's not all equally understandable all equally clear and so like you know one of my favorite illustrations of this is in second peter chapter 3 peter is talking about some of paul's writings and peter's like listen i don't know what that guy's writing that stuff is complicated And uh, and Peter has his own moments of writing complicated stuff, and so he's just affirming that although the Bible is equally true, it's not equally clear. And sometimes what makes it not clear is that the sin in us makes it sometimes hard to get a grasp of the Bible, that we are fighting against what it is saying, and we don't want it to say what it is saying, and so we can fight against it. At other times, it's just because we are a couple of thousand years removed from the original hearers of the Bible. And so you can just imagine all the cultural things that happen between now and then that make the original intent into that group of hearers hard for us to discern and see. We just have our own 21st century lens. So for all those ways and and reasons, sometimes the Bible is not equally clear. Now, if you want to have like, you know, you've got a poster in your room and, and a chapter of the Bible that would be on the, it's all true, but not equally clear. This text in Mark 13 is on the poster. It is the poster child for complicated, hard, um, not clear. It, it is that to a T. And now secondly, and this is kind of the other preface, um, this introduces us to the, to the topic of eschatology or the study of end times. Now, go ahead and put, you can keep your charts, all that stuff in your pocket. You don't need to pull those out. Um, but, but if you've done any sort of work in there, you know that there's a lot of ambiguity and, uh, you know, the Bible is just not as clear as we would like for it to be in, you know, in these areas. And so when it comes to end times things, there are things the Bible is very clear on. And there are things the Bible, and most of it is in this category, things the Bible is not clear on. And I want to just give you a way of approaching this. This is our way at Stonegate of approaching this. Where the Bible is very clear, we're going to be very close-handed and firm. We're going to stand right there. Um, where the Bible is not clear, we're going to be very gracious. And let me just summarize what I think the Bible is very clear on when it comes to end time stuff. Jesus is coming back and we don't know when. That's my summation of it. Jesus is coming back and we don't know when that's going to happen. And so I am all in on, believe with all of my heart, there's going to be a day where the skies split, Jesus comes back to rescue his bride, the church, and put an end to Satan, sin and death. That day is coming for us, Right? Um, but the Bible is also clear, just look at verse 32 of this chapter, that we have no idea when that's going to be. So Jesus is coming back, we have no idea when, everything else, here is our approach. We are very gracious. We, we could have big time disagreements among our church family, and I would say, yep, we probably should. The Bible is very unclear in that particular area. Okay, last thing I need to say, and then we're going to jump in, is that we are about to be absolute nerds for the first half of this sermon. So uh, the first half, there is no way around it. If we're going to try to get the layout of this text, we're going to have to get really like Bible nerdy for a few minutes. So hang in there. Like this is going to require you to actually do some thinking, you know, like you're going to have to like buckle in and like do this with me. You're going to have to go here with me. You're going to have to think. You're going to have to, to, you know, work with me here as we kind of get the lay of the land and what's happening in, in this text. Okay, so with those things out of the way, we are to Mark 13, and I want to start with the first four uh, verses, because we need to get the context of what's going down here, the context that, that kind of drives this chapter. And just as an aside, this is the longest teaching of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, and you can find the parallels of this chapter in Mark uh, 13, you can find the parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, so it's in all three of the synoptic gospels. Okay, so with that said, uh, first four verses go like this. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building and buildings. And these things are great. They walk out of the temple and they, I think they kind of had this moment where they look back and they're just awestruck and gawking at how incredible these buildings were, that this temple structure was. And first of all, it, it was a massive structure. It would have been um, one of the wonders of the world in that time, had it still, you know, be here today, it would have been just incredible. Very ornate, massive building. Uh, The foundational stones that kind of undergirded the building were the size of like railroad boxcars. We're talking just massive, uh, massive stuff here. And it was very ornate. They had the whole thing covered in plates of gold. Just a very beautiful building. And on top of all of that, for the people of Israel— When when I'm describing this, it's it's virtually impossible for me to convey how important the temple was to a first century Jewish man or woman. I mean, it was like the center of everything for them. This is the place where they met with God. It's the place where they worshiped God, sacrificed to God. It was the place where God's spirit dwelt. It was all of that. It was just massively important. And in light of that, that's kind of the context you bring into verse 2 when Jesus absolutely shocks the world in verse 2. He says this. And Jesus said to him. so they're just gawking at this incredibly ornate and massive building, the temple. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, Four or five years ago, my dad got diagnosed with leukemia. And you know, when, when you hear news like that, it feels for a while like, The world is just caving in on you, you know? And so I think that would be the picture that I would want you to carry in to verse 2. When they heard Jesus say, you see those buildings? There's not going to be one stone left upon another. It's going to be completely leveled and destroyed. That is the sort of emotional response they would have had. It would have sent like a shockwave of unbelief and bewilderment through the disciples' souls, you know, on top of all this, I think Matthew, he does a good job of just describing this moment. When the disciples are thinking about what Jesus just said, they equated that moment of like, oh, so you're saying the temple's gonna be destroyed? They equated with, if that's gonna happen, that's such a big deal. If that's gonna happen, the end of the world would like have to be right then. Like it would have to mean that the end of the world is happening if we see the temple destroyed. This is how big of an issue it was for them. Okay, now that's the, the statement that the kind of, drives into now verses three and four. So they're gawking at the building. Jesus says, hey, you see that building? It's about to be torn in two. And then verse three says this. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is why um, this chapter is called the Olivet Discourse. It's because Jesus was in the Mount of Olives when when he told it. So as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? What are these things? He just said, these great buildings are going to be torn down. You know, Not one stone left upon another. These things are talking about that, what Jesus just said in verse 2. So tell us, verse 4 again, let me just read it one more time. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these are about to be accomplished? Okay, that forms the context for the chapter. This is what Jesus is addressing. I'm gonna tear down, these buildings are about to be destroyed. They're gonna be torn down. The disciples ask, when will these things be? What are the signs? That's the driving context that, that forms this chapter. Now, here is where the debate begins. This is where things get really blurry in the chapter. It is obvious in this chapter that there are components of it that talk about two different things. Now, let me just describe the two different things. Thing number one, We're gonna call this like bucket number one in this chapter. Bucket number one, like some of the the verses in this this chapter are gonna go into this bucket and it's things talking about the destruction of the temple. What Jesus just said is gonna happen in verse two. See that great building? It's about to be torn asunder. That's bucket number one. Things that are addressing those things that will be leading up to the destruction of the temple. But if you look at the very end of the chapter, it's obvious that there's at least some of this chapter that is dealing not with the destruction of the temple, but Jesus's return, his second coming when he comes back for his bride, the church. So there is some things in this chapter that are addressing that, Jesus's second return. And the big debate in this chapter is what verses and what parts of this chapter fit into bucket one, addressing things that are gonna be surrounding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and what is in bucket two. Things are addressing Jesus' second coming. Now, let me just kind of give the lay of the land kind of where this debate is. The traditional approach, and I would say the most widely held, the most popular approach, is that most of this chapter is in bucket two, dealing with the second coming of Jesus. That's how most people read this. So that's why if a war breaks out in the Middle East, people are like, man, there's, there's war, there's rumors of war. That means Jesus, he's coming back. That's verse seven. You know, so that's how most people read this passage. That it's almost, you know, primarily talking about um, this futuristic second coming of Jesus. Now, I want to put all my cards on the table, and I'm doing this as humbly as I can. We could disagree, and we would be totally fine. Nothing, you know, too big is at stake here. Um, and I'm very humble. I may very well prove to be wrong in this at some point, and I would humbly accept that I could be wrong in this. But I think all of verse five. Through 31 deals with bucket one, things surrounding the destruction of the temple. 32 through 37, which we'll get to next week, deals with the second coming of Jesus. So that's where I am on it. I wanna try to give you some reasons for that, but I think all of verse 5 through 31 is answering the disciples' questions. When will these things be and what will be the signs? And then you get to verse 32, there is a distinct shift. And now we're talking about Jesus's second coming. Okay, that's how I think the chapter is divided. That's how I think the buckets work. Five through 31, bucket one, uh, destruction of the temple in AD 70. And then you get bucket two, the second coming of Jesus. That's verses 32 through 37. Now, let me give you some reasons why I think that's the, the layout of the chapter. Why I think that it's divided in that sort of a way. And again, we are about to get really nerdy. Bear with me, do some thinking with me. Yeah, here we go. So reason number one on why I think that's true. Number one is because of the connection between verses two and verse four, the connection between those. So let me just read verse two and verse four one more time. Verse two says this, Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse four now says, Tell us then, when will these things, now what are these things? It is the things Jesus just said would happen. The temple is gonna be absolutely destroyed. We know that happened in AD 70. So Jesus is saying, what, I'm, you know, what we're addressing here, the, the question that the, these things is that, the temple being destroyed. So verse four, tell us, when will these things happen, temple being destroyed, and what will be the sign when all these things, temple being destroyed, are about to be accomplished? So I think that's the driving question of the chapter. It's talking not about primarily Jesus's second coming, but verses five through 31 are dealing with the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. Second reason why I think this is true, why verses five through 31 all fit in the bucket of the things around the destruction of the temple, between Jesus's death and the destruction of the temple. All those things fit. You know, 5 through 31. Second reason why I think that's true is because there's geographical and cultural specifics in the instructions that would only make sense if he's talking specifically to a crowd back then, not a 21st century crowd. So uh, look at verse 14. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So if he's talking about um, first century Jewish person, that makes perfect sense. You're gonna see the temple being destroyed and here's what you need to do when that happens. Flee, get out of there. But that's a little harder to make sense if he's talking about 21st century people living in Midlothian, kind of getting ready for the second return of Jesus. Um, first of all, we, I mean, if mountains are the things we need to run to, that's gonna be a problem, isn't it? That's gonna be a really long run for us. But it just doesn't make quite as much sense. It's just not as natural of a reading if you're trying to move that into like 21st century, this futuristic second coming thing. Here's the third reason why I think verses five through 31 all fit into the bucket one, the category of things around the destruction of the temple. Third reason is verse 30. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says this, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things. Now, what are these things? Goes back to verse two. Jesus says the temple is gonna be destroyed, not one stone left upon another, when all of these things will take place. So he's saying, this generation right here, I think this is the most natural reading of that. All of the things I've just said are going to be surrounding the temple being destroyed. And all of these things I've just said, everybody in this current generation, meaning those of you who are alive right now, like the generation that's my contemporaries, all of you are going to see this. And that would prove to be true. Jesus died in, you know, the AD 30s. And this happened in eighty seventy. That's in the generation. I think that's the most natural way to read it. That these things means all the things he has previously talked about in verses 5 through, uh, through 29. And he's saying all of these things I've just talked about. Wars, rumors of war, persecution, the abomination of desolation. All of these things you're going to see in this generation. Now the traditional understanding of this passage, kind of the futuristic, this is all talking about second coming stuff. This verse poses a problem. Like, you know, people start to do really weird things when you get to this verse. Like C.S. Lewis, I love him generally. I don't like him in this instance. Here's what he said when he got to verse 30. He's like, you know, I think this is just like one of those places where Jesus, he, he swung and he just missed it. He was just wrong in this area. It didn't happen in this generation. Um, other people though um, would, would kind of start to do like some gymnastics with the word generation. So rather than generation being kind of the the normal sort of a meaning of like, and this is the way it's used the other 27 times you find it in in the New Testament, Um, the, the normal way it would be used is Jesus looking out and saying, you people who are like alive with me right now, this generation, my contemporaries, you people, that's generation. Some people try to take that word generation and try to kind of make it and kind of twist it into, well, maybe he's talking about the Jewish race, And so the Jewish race will not pass away until they see all of these things. But I just think you have to really stretch it to mean that. I think the most natural meaning when you get to this is he is saying all of these things that I've just talked about, you people who are alive right now, you're going to see those things. Meaning that all that would have to fit into bucket one, things around the the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And lastly, um, last reason why I think it fits that way is verse 32. Look at verse 32. This is where we get our close-handed, this is what we believe about eschatology things. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. No one knows the day or hour that Jesus is gonna come back, Jesus is saying. Now, it would just seem really odd to me, like play this out. If if all of verses five through, you know, 31, we're talking about second coming, when Jesus is gonna come back, the signs around it. Man, you need to be looking for this and looking for that, and then you're gonna know that I'm coming. If all of that were true, it just seems weird that then he would say in verse 32, but hey, you know all those signs that, you know, look for that, look for this, but then to say, but hey, you know what? You're not gonna know when I'm coming back. That just seems weird, doesn't it? I mean, it would seem weird that he would say, be looking for all of these sort of signs. And when you see them, then you know. And then in verse 32 say, hey, you know all those signs really. They're really not that, That you're actually gonna have no idea when I'm coming back. It would just seem weird. I think the most natural reading again is to say, verses five through 31, all fit around the destruction of the temple. All things leading up to that, surrounding that, that that current generation would see. Then you hit verse 32 and now the conversation shifts and Jesus is now talking about his second coming. Okay, now that's why I think the the layout works that way. Let me answer one objection and then we're gonna kind of jump in and try to apply this and make sense of this chapter for your life and my life. I think one of the objections that people have as to why they would have a hard time agreeing with me that five through 31 all fit into the bucket of things that happened. All of those things happened between Jesus's death and the destruction of the temple is verse 10. Look at Mark chapter 13, verse 10. This is one of the objections to the view I'm saying, that all of 5 through 31 fit in the bucket of things that happened pre-AD 70. Verse 10 says this, all the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Now on the surface, that would seem like Jesus is saying that, you know, and, and if you're in kind of that thinking that's in a bucket two category, you're saying that before these things could happen, all, the gospel has to be preached to the ends of the earth, like to all the world. Like it's got to get out there. And so there's a, there's a, you know, an element you could be saying so. There's no way that happened by AD 70, right? Like the gospel did not make it to the ends of the world by AD 70. And let me just go one step further here. The, and I, The last thing I wanna do is curb missional kind of enthusiasm. I want us to be a church that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. But how this verse is often preached goes something like this. If you want Jesus to return, here's what we need to be about doing. If we wanna start the party of Jesus coming back, we need to be about getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's how this passage is normally read. And I'm just saying, I don't think this passage is saying that. I think this passage is saying before the the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the gospel is going to get out. I think verse 10 happened between the death of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. But it begs the question, seriously, how? Like, how did the gospel get preached to the entire world when, like, America was still like, un- you know, we didn't even know that existed yet. You know, how did that happen? And so let me just kind of give a brief kind of side note and kind of explain why I think I can say that that verse didn't happened pre AD 70. And this is a good moment for us to learn a little more about how do you read the Bible? You can't read the Bible, like this is the wrong way to read the Bible. It's wrong to read the Bible like this. Let me take my 21st century lens and perspective and now read the Bible through that, interpreting everything through my 21st century lens. That's the, that will get you into deep trouble when you read the Bible. Here's what we've got to do to read the Bible correctly. We've got to get to the original intent. That means that when we read a passage like this, we've got to step into the shoes of the original audience and ask the question, how would I have just heard and interpreted what it is that Jesus just said? Like when he just said that the gospel's got to get to, the, to all the nations before this thing can go down, how would a first century person interpret that? And, and let me just... Kind of make us, you know, kind of jump into that. A 21st century, or a first century person is not going to hear that verse like you would. See, when we hear that verse, here's what we're thinking. It's gotta be to all the nations. That means it's gotta get to North America. We gotta be down in Australia. We gotta get over to Russia and China. We've gotta get around like the entire globe world. But ask yourself the question, if you're a first century person hearing this, is that the way you would have interpreted and heard that verse? And my answer is no, that's not the way you would have heard that. You don't even know America exists yet. So it's impossible for you to be even thinking in terms of like the world as you as a 21st century person would know it. And so if you put yourself in the eyes of, or, you know, the shoes of a first century hearer, I think you would hear this. When Jesus says that the gospel has to be proclaimed to all the nations, you're going to think this. That means it's got to be beyond the borders of our Jewish world. So we're going to have to get, it's going to have to reach the Gentiles. And I think that word world or all the nations would mean for you the world that we know. That's like the Roman world. That's like the inhabitable world. That's like the nation surrounding us. That's like the, the area around the Mediterranean Sea that is the world that we know of. Now, I think that is consistent with how the Bible talks about this. Let me give you a couple of illustrations for why I think that. Luke 2.1. This is a really popular Christmas passage. Luke 2.1 goes like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, did he mean people in like North America and people in Australia, all the way over to Russia? And, did he mean that? No, he meant like the people in the inhabitable world, like Roman empire, like those people that we know of right here, that's all the world. Um, here's another one, Acts eleven twenty eight. And and, uh, one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Now, did Agabus mean in that moment that that was going to reach Australia and South America all the way down to like Chile and it's going to be all over? Is that what he meant? I don't think so. I think he is saying all the world is like the area that we know of around us, that is all the world. Now, let me give you uh, one, one more here, Acts 24, 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Again, you're just seeing all the world used in a different way that you and I would use it. They're not using it to describe every country on you know, the planet. They're using to describe their known world. Now, let me give you some specifics on why I think, um, I can say, I think Mark 13, 10 was accomplished pre the fall of the temple in AD seventy. And let me and just listen to how let me kind of describe how Paul uses and talks about how far the gospel had made it out. Okay, here's how he talks about it. This is Colossians one twenty three. Okay, so listen now he talks about how far the gospel had reached, by roughly the AD seventy. This is Colossians one. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So gospel is the topic and here's the last phrase which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Paul, first century, is saying, hey, this gospel, it's been proclaimed throughout all the nations. It's there. It's every creature under, you know, all cre- its It's been proclaimed to them. And here's another one in Romans 1, eight. Here's how Paul talks about it. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, he 's saying that the gospel has made it out to all the world. like when they use the word "world, it is all the world that they know of. the habitable world, the gospel is now out to it. So I think Mark 13:10 was actually accomplished in terms of how they would understand it. Not how you would read world, but how they would read it, I think it was accomplished before the fall of the temple in AD um, 70. OK, so nerd hat is now off. Thank the Lord, right? So, but the the big point is, I'm saying this. 5 through 31, I think, fits all in the bucket of the things surrounding the fall of the temple, AD 70. 32 through 37, we'll get to next week. That fits in bucket two, second coming. Now, here comes the question that I wanna spend the rest of our time with. So what difference does this make? So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is profitable. Like, so we, we know that all scripture is true. And we know that sometimes not all scripture is equally clear, but even like the unclear passages, even those, Paul is saying in in 2 Timothy, those are profitable for us, for teaching, rebuke, correcting, and training. There are things that we need to know even in unclear passages. So what are the things in this passage that you and I, 21st century Christians living today, what are the things we need to know? What is God teaching us in this passage? And let me give you three of them. Three things. Number one. The first thing that I think this, this passage is profitable for us to see goes like this. That, that you, at Christians, so all those who have put your faith in Jesus, you need to know this. That Christians can count on chaos. Christians can count on trouble. Christians can count on adversity, trials, tribulation. Christians can count on that. We, we can take that to the bank knowing Those things are going to happen. Now this chapter um, outlines a sampling of those sort of trials and troubles that we might face. So let's just work down through a few of these. So look at verses five and six. We might call this like religious imposters who lead people astray. Verses five and six say this, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So he's saying, man, there's gonna be religious imposters that give you all sorts of trouble, all sorts of trouble. And if you just start reading through in Acts, you see this actually play out in Acts. All this happened before the fall of the, of the temple in AD 70. Let me just give you a sampling out of the book of Acts. In Acts 5, we're introduced to a guy named Thutis and a guy named Judas the Galilean who both gathered a following around them. And then when they died, the follow, you know, the, their followers kind of dispersed. Um, later on in Acts 8, we have a guy named Simon the Magician. Same thing, he, he leads people astray. He draws people to himself, leads them astray. In Acts 13, the false prophet Bar-Jesus does the same thing. In Acts 21, an unnamed uh, Egyptian does the same thing. Um, early church historians like Josephus and Eusebius, they continually talked about all of these religious imposters claiming to be the next Messiah that, that would lead people astray. And, and Jesus is saying, to them back then and to you and I now, we should expect that sort of a thing. You should expect to turn on the TV and see craziness. You should expect that. Like this is what he's saying. There is going to be chaos. We live in a fallen world, and as long as we're in a fallen world, there are going to be crazy people out there claiming all sorts of crazy things trying to get you to follow them. This is a this is. This is part of what it means to live in a fallen world, and it's part of what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world. So you've got religious imposters, then you get to verses 7 and 8, and you get this idea of military um, conflict and just absolute upheaval. Look at verse 7 and 8. And when you hear of, of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. "'For nation will rise against nation "'and kingdom against kingdom. "'There will be earthquakes in various places. "'There will be famines. "'These are but the beginnings of the birth pains.'" And all of those things happened before the fall of the temple in AD 70. Um, Early church historians talked about this. There was um, a a situation in Caesarea where 20,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, a moment where 50,000 Jews were killed. In Damascus, a moment where 10,000 Jews were killed. Another historian talks about all the sort of wars that were happening in that moment, that that all the rumors, over here, these people warring, these people warring. All of that happened pre eighty seven, 70, when the temple fell, all this was leading up to the fall of the temple. And then, and you start reading in Acts, you see these um, upheavals, what we might call, like earthquakes, like famines. We, we read the passage in Acts 11 earlier where Agabus predicted there's gonna be a famine throughout the, the entire world, big time famine, people die, people starve to death, horrible things, that sort of chaotic thing. And we also have the the idea of earthquakes in Acts. Do you remember in um, Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison? Do you remember how they got out of prison? An earthquake ripped right through the city. The the doors just kind of swing open, and here they walk out. But those sort of crazy things were happening. And here's what Jesus is saying to you and I today you can expect that sort of craziness and you should expect it. We live in a fallen world so you can expect things like military conflict. You can expect things like earthquakes. You can expect things like famines. You can expect chaotic moments all along the way. He's saying, don't be surprised about that. I'm telling you, those things are going to happen. This is part of what it means to live in a fallen world. Then he goes on, verses nine through 13. And he talks about persecution. He says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And the gospel first must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I just love how Jesus is reminding them in the midst of all sorts of persecution and craziness that the Holy Spirit will be a help to them. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And all of those things happened pre AD seventy if you just read through Acts, if you read through Acts like this, just look at the headings, like the little section headings, you're gonna see all of those things come true. You're gonna see Paul um, drug outside of a city and stoned. You're gonna see um, Stephen stoned to death. You're gonna see Paul in prison. You're gonna see Paul before um, kings and emperors. You're gonna see Paul before the religious leaders standing trial. You're gonna see all of those things happen. Now, Jesus is also saying to you and I, You should expect that. If if you're a Christian in the room, he's saying this. You should have in your mind an expectation that I will encounter things like that, that sort of persecution. That should not come as a surprise to any one of us. And and then he goes on, verses 14 through 23. I'm just going to label it tribulation and trouble. And and here's how it goes in verse 14. And by the way, when you read uh, verse 14, you're gonna see that there is a change in tone. Verses five through 13, it sounds more like this. Hey, you're gonna see these things happening, but they're more like birth pains. It's not like delivery time yet. It's not like baby's here yet. It's like, these are just the leading up things. But then you get to verse 14, he's like, man, these aren't birth pains. There is a baby about to be, this is like delivery time. Like, you know, 5 through 13, the the, the thing is more like, hey, don't be alarmed, hang in there. When you get to verse 14, it's like, you better run. You better get out of there. So watch how it goes in, in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, Standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, verse 14 begs the question, what is the abomination of desolation? Good luck with that, right? And so I, I'll give you my take on what I think is, is happening here. Um, what is the abomination of desolation? So that bar, he is borrowing language from Daniel some 500 years before. And when Daniel uses that language, he is talking about a moment where the temple will be absolutely desecrated and profaned. Okay, that's the context in Daniel. There's gonna be a moment where the temple is absolutely made a mockery of. And so it's interesting, Luke adds this little detail in his parallel account to this passage, where he says, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, you know it's about to happen. So what I take that to mean is the moment where um, Titus, this Roman general, surrounds Jerusalem and he lays siege to the city. I think that's what he's talking about. When you see that, you know that the destruction of the temple, all the, the, the profaning of it and the desecrating of it, you know that is on the horizon. Then you get to verse 15. And he says, when you see that, this is what you should do. Let the one who is on the housetop not go back down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. He's saying, when you see this, you need to run. Then look at verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. When uh, the the Roman emperor, or the the general Titus, laid siege to Jerusalem, uh, Josephus, in one of his books, uh, he was an early church historian, he, uh, he described in detail the horrific things that were happening inside of Jerusalem as, you know, they're basically being starved out. So he talks about this deep starvation, people dying left and right. Um, So many people dying that they just gave up trying to bury the bodies. They just started dumping the bodies over the wall outside the city. Just horrible. People were resorting to cannibalism. Uh, There's even stories that he talks about where parents are eating their kids. It's that desperate and just dark of, of days. It's that, it's that bad. And the people were so weak that by the time the city actually fell, they had no fight left in them. mean, um, it's said that over a million Jews in Jerusalem in that day were slaughtered um, when the Romans poured in. And there was something like 100,000 they didn't kill that they sold into slavery. Just an absolutely horrible moment that he's describing in, in uh, verse 19. And then you get to verses 20 and beyond. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So that's the sort of chaos that he's talking about. Now look at the last phrase here in verse 23. And this is the instruction that Jesus is giving you and I be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So you you see the point here? He's saying as as Christians, as as my followers, this should be something that you expect. This should not catch you off guard. I am telling you beforehand, these things are going to happen. Not just between my death and, and the destruction of the temple, but throughout human history. These things have happened. These things were happening then, and they will happen for you now in 21st century America. You can expect all of these things to be present in your life if you're following me. So he's saying this, if you're a Christian, don't expect it because you're a Christian. You're a follower of God. You're in the family of God. Don't expect that now because of that, all trouble and trials and chaos, that it's just going to disappear out of your life. That is not true, he's saying that you can expect it to be in there. I love how um, Peter says it. He, he talks in a very similar language to Jesus here. And, and if you think about the context of First and 2 Peter, he is trying to encourage saints that are in the midst of suffering. You just kind of pick what you want to talk about. We could talk difficult marriage. We could talk about depression. We could talk about persecution. We could talk about all of these things. And here's, here's some of the encouragement that, that, first, or that Peter gives in 1 Peter 4. In verse 12, he says this, You should not, don't be surprised by these fiery trials as if something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't be surprised when you run run headlong into really dark and difficult days. Don't be surprised as if something strange were happening then. That is like, that is normal fare for Christians. This This is what makes up life for a Christian in a fallen world. Don't be surprised by that. I, the, the amount that you're surprised when you run into difficulties in your life, the, the, the sort of shock and surprise that you would feel in that moment, moment is telling you how far off your view of what God says in the Bible and about your life is from the scriptures. He's saying, listen, don't be shocked here. Don't be surprised. You can expect these things. And I love what, he's, what Peter says in First Peter 4.1. He says, okay, so we have a, a, a Savior in Jesus that suffered. In light of that, arm yourselves with that knowledge. See, here's how, his, his, here's how the logic goes. He's saying, okay, so, so we, we're following Jesus and Jesus suffered here on earth. So as his followers, it would be very logical and a good assumption to think we are going to suffer too as his followers. If our leaders suffered, if our masters suf, you know, suffered, we're gonna suffer. That, that's the logic. And then he says this, now take that and arm yourself with that. Put that that on, wear that, know that. I mean, gird up your minds with that. No, you've got to preach to yourself. There are going to be days that are going to be hard, that are going to be dark. Those days are coming. I am not going to be avoiding these sort of trials and trouble and tribulation. I am not going to avoid them. He says, arm yourself with that awareness. Arm yourself with that knowledge. You've got to know that as a Christian. Now, let me take just one um, quick aside, and I want to address um, those in the room who have not stepped across the line of faith. So so you have not become a Christian yet. And it is so important that you know this up front. I don't want you to ever feel like there's been a bait and switch on you. Because if you're not careful, if all you do is flip on the TV and kind of like just kind of absorb what comes to you from, from TV guys up there that are preaching, Here's what you're gonna, you're gonna probably absorb is a Christianity without a cross. I mean, here's the thing, Christianity has a cross. It always has suffering as a component of it, always. You never get away from that. And so if, if you're on the front end of investigating the claims of Jesus, I want you to hear me say this just as straightforward as I can. If you receive Jesus, it is not going to make your life Easier as far as like temporally things that are happening. It does not gonna mean that trials and troubles are gonna just miraculously exit your life. That is not what you're signing up for. It is it is likely and let me take it one step further. It's not only that it's not gonna get easier, it will likely get harder. It'll likely be more difficult. This is what 2 Timothy 3 is saying in verse 12 when when Paul says, Listen, man, all who desire to live a godly life, here's the thing you're gonna suffer persecution. Like this is why Jesus says in Mark 8, if you want to follow me, there's actually a cross that means you're going to have an encounter suffering along the way of that. That those days are coming for you. Now that begs the question, if, if I'm saying that it's, you know, you're receiving Jesus, is actually not going to make your life easier. It's probably going to make your life actually harder in some ways. Why would anyone be crazy enough to receive Jesus then? I mean, what is wrong with you in the room? I can just picture that question being asked if you're a person that's investigating Jesus in here. So let me give you the answer to that. Why is it that I would still, in light of saying that you receive Jesus, it's probably gonna get harder, not easier. Why would I still say you should still receive Jesus? Answer, I love how one pastor answers it. Here's how he addresses that question. The answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable. We all know that? The biggest need in your life is not to have a long life and to be comfortable all of your life. The biggest human needs are how to have sins forgiven and overcome our separation from God and live forever with happiness in his presence instead of living forever in misery and hell. That's the most important thing. So why is it that I would still say, receive Jesus like today? Like, don't wait another day. Receive, even knowing that it's gonna make some things in your life harder. Why? Because the most important thing in the world, the biggest need that you have is to have your sins forgiven. And the only way that can ever happen is by receiving Jesus. So the first thing we learn from this passage is Christians can expect chaos. The second thing, and we're gonna be landing the plane here pretty quick. The second thing is that Christians can be confident in a victorious Jesus in the midst of chaos. Chaos. Like in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of all of these crazy things happening, that Christians can be confident that we have a God who is on the throne. Amen? So this is what you get starting in verse 24. Some pretty cryptic verses here. Let's look, watch how it goes. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. That's stock imagery of the Old Testament to describe a huge event is happening. And here's the event, verse 26. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So that verse 26, when you read that, I am assuming... If you know your Bible fairly well, that that is probably triggering, that sure sounds like Jesus' second coming sort of language. But I want to make the case for, I don't think that is second coming language. I think that is what happened between AD, you know, roughly 37, between the death of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. Now, so what is happening in verse 26? This idea of of Jesus coming on the the clouds, that, that language. That language goes right back to Daniel again, Daniel chapter 7. So I want you to put yourself in the the shoes of a first century hearer and listen to the connection a first century Jewish man or woman would have made to Daniel 7. Now listen to what Daniel 7 says. This will be on the screen for you. Daniel 7 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, look at the similar language, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. You see the similarities there? With the cloud of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God Almighty, and was presented before God, the Father. And to him, the Son of Man who was coming on the clouds, to him was given dominion and authority and glory and and the kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that should not be destroyed. See, here's what I think Daniel is talking about. I don't think Daniel is talking about second coming, where Jesus, like, you know, comes back. I think he's talking about this Jesus. So think about what happens in the book of Mark. Jesus is stripped naked, he's humiliated in front of his creation. He allows his own creation to crucify him on a cross. It is humble Jesus. That's what we get in the picture of Mark. But then Jesus dies. Then he is resurrected from the dead. And resurrected Jesus isn't just humble Jesus, he is victorious Jesus. Resurrected Jesus is the Jesus that ascends to heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And I think this is what Daniel 7 and this passage in, in verse 26 is talking about. It's Jesus ascending to the right hand of God the Father where he gets his dominion. Where he gets all the glory, where the kingdom is now his and he has set it up. I think that's what's happening. It is this picture of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, being enthroned at the right hand of God the Father and everyone and everything submitting to King Jesus. That's the picture. Now think about just how this applies. This pushes down to our life. He's using that picture to comfort Christians who are in a chaotic season. Think crazy things are happening. And he's saying, here's what you need to endure and be faithful in the midst of craziness and chaos. You need to know this about God. He is sovereign. You need to know this about Jesus. He is sitting on the throne. You need to know this about your suffering. Every part of your suffering is under the sovereignty of God. There will never be one iota of trial and trouble enter into your life apart from it being on the leash of God where God directs it. It'll never go any further than God wants it to go. It'll never go to the right if God doesn't want it to go to the right. It'll never go to the left if God doesn't want it to go to the left. He is sovereign over every piece of suffering that we are enduring. And in that moment where it feels like the, you know, the floor is just fallen out from underneath us, Jesus is saying, this is what you need to know in that moment. I am sovereign in particular over your suffering. I'm suffering even over that. And part of me being sovereign, you know, even over that, doesn't just mean that it's on my leash, that suffering that's entered into your life. It also means that I will take every bit of trial and trouble in your life and I will turn it ultimately into your eternal triumph. This is what it means to know that God is sovereign in suffering. Now, the truth is there are many of us in the room right now. I just wanna have a very pastoral moment here where you are in the throes of just hard, difficult, just a, I mean, just a gut-wrenching season of life. And the point of this passage is to help you endure that. The point, the take home is to help you be faithful in the midst of that. And it's not telling us maybe everything we need to know, but it's telling us the main thing we need to know. If we want to survive and even thrive in the midst of chaos and suffering and trials and tribulation, here's the main thing we have to know. God is on his throne. And that God who is on his throne because of the work of Jesus has also pledged himself to be our father. So we, like Paul in Romans 8, can say, if that God is for us, who in the world can be against us? Amen? We have to be able to say that in the midst of our suffering. And here's the last thing, and we're done. Last thing. So we see that that Christians can expect chaos, that we can be confident in a sovereign and victorious Christ in the midst of our chaos. And lastly, this passage is a reminder to everyone. It's a reminder to everyone that we should consider the wrath of God. That we should, we should consider the wrath of God. You know, when I think about Mark 13, I think it's one of the most tragic chapters in the entire Bible. Here's the, the big, you know, big story plot line in Mark 13. Because the Jews have rejected Jesus as their only hope of salvation, because they have rejected Jesus, here's what God is saying in Mark 13. My white hot wrath toward your sin is about to be poured over your head. And here's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like tribulation and trouble. It's going to look like the destruction of the temple. It's going to look like all of that. My white hot wrath is being poured out because you have rejected my, my son and Savior Jesus. Now in that way, Mark 13 is a preview of what will one day happen for every man and every woman who rejects Jesus. It is a preview of that. It is a warning of that. That everyone who rejects Jesus there will be a day where God's white hot wrath is poured out on their heads too. I was reading John 336 this week. And I think it just summarizes the intensity and just the the anguish that is Mark 13. In John 3, 36, Jesus says this, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. If you receive the son, if you trust in the son, you have eternal life. But whoever does not obey the son, who rejects the son, who says no to Jesus, shall not see life, last phrase, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now look at me right in the eye. The absolute worst thing that could ever be said to you is this, The wrath of God remains on you. Look at me. That's the worst thing that could ever be said. That the wrath of God remains on you. That this white, hot, unrelenting, just soul crunching wrath of God remains on you. That's the worst thing that could ever be said about you. It's the worst thing ever. It's the most terrifying news in the universe. It's the worst news of the universe. But here is what makes the good news of the gospel so good. It's that that wrath of God doesn't have to remain on you. It does, pre-Jesus, it does remain on us. Pre-Jesus, before we receive Jesus, it's on every human being. Post-Jesus, us trusting Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, the great news of the gospel is that it stops God's wrath from coming toward us. See, if you, if you want the gospel in four words, here is the good news of Jesus. Jesus in your place. That's the good news of the gospel. Now think about how the rest of Mark is gonna end over the next few chapters. Jesus is gonna be stripped naked. He's gonna be humiliated. He's gonna be mocked. He's gonna be beaten. And he's gonna be nailed to a cross. And on that cross, Jesus' white hot wrath over your sin and over my sin is poured onto Jesus, absolutely crushing him. And here's the great news. For all those who receive Jesus, guess what? Jesus takes your wrath, now you get Jesus' welcome. For all those who don't receive Jesus, you get his wrath. And here's, here's the great news of the gospel. You don't have to. I, the, the good news of the gospel is there's a wide open invitation for you, for everyone in the room this morning, not to have wrath, but to have Welcome. See, if you just want to bottom shelf the big question of the Bible, the big question of the Bible goes like this. Do you want Jesus or do you want wrath? And the great news of the Bible is is God has freely given Jesus to you. So can I just plead with everyone in the room this morning, take Jesus, not wrath. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to press India the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that are not helpful this morning. And first and foremost, just to those in the room who, who you know you have not received Jesus, you know there's never been a point where you have put your faith in Jesus, held up your life and said, God, save me. I'm trusting Jesus. Save me. The truth is, Mark 13 is a vivid reminder that apart from you receiving Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. But but the book of Mark as a whole is a beautiful reminder that it doesn't have to remain on you that Jesus went to a cross so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that you would never have to. He drank the wrath of God to the last drop so you would never have to. So I wanna plead with those in the room who you've never received Jesus, this is your morning. And hold up your life and say, God, save me. Then repent from your sin, turn to Jesus. And the great news of the Bible is God is stands so ready and so willing to do just that. For the rest of us in the room that, You're a son or daughter of God now. You're in the family of God. And let this be a reminder that we can all expect the chaos of trial and trouble and deep battles with sin. We can all expect that. I don't know what form that's taking in your life right now, but Jesus wants us to know we should expect that. Don't don't let that catch you off guard as something strange. And he's reminding all of us in the room that our suffering is under his sovereignty that he is on the throne, that he is victorious, that everything, including suffering and evil and Satan and sin, ultimately all do his bidding. It's on his leash, never to go a step further than he allows. And so for those in the room who this morning, life just feels like it is squeezing you to death, just on the brink of despair, just so hard this morning when you walk in, we want to take just a brief moment to pray for you. We're not going to embarrass you, but you just raise your hand up where you are just so we can see and just have a chance to pray over you. If That's where you are this morning. Thank you, yeah, all over the room. Anybody else? Just go ahead and lift up your hand there where you are. This morning, man, life just seems to be squeezing you. Yeah, who else? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else? Yeah, others? I want to end by praying for those who just raised their hand. So, Father, we pray that this morning, in this moment, that you would give the relief of the work of your Spirit in their life. God, I pray that there would be a renewed confidence this morning that you are faithful, even when it feels like the world is falling apart. God, that you are sovereign, that you can be trusted, that you are a good Father, that if you're for them, no one can be against them. It wouldn't matter who's against them. So Father, might you this morning bring great comfort to hearts Will you restore hope this morning. God, will you be a help this morning? God, would the Spirit do its work in in individual lives across this room applying the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus? And God, I pray that even as we sing this last song, that there might be a rising confidence in each of us in the room that you are stronger. You're stronger than Satan. You're stronger than, than sin. You're stronger than death. You're stronger than depression. You're stronger than, than marriages that are in crisis. You're stronger than, than everything. That You're stronger. God, help us believe that. It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Why don't you stand with me as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.